Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. It's me, your host, Sarah Ivory. Today, we've got a report from Caracas. Venezuela's president, Hugo Chavez, is in the headlines again. He's just appointed a new military chief who's been accused of aiding drug traffickers in Colombia. It's just the latest of many provocations from Chavez, from nationalizing American and European oil assets when he first came into office, to cozying up with the likes of Fidel Castro, Vladimir Putin, and Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. That last alliance is one of many gestures made by Chavez that have created an uneasy climate for Jews in Venezuela. In particular, in Caracas, Jews have seen their property expropriated, their schools and synagogues vandalized, and the word Jew used to symbolize greed and corruption. Many of Caracas's Jews have left town, but a vital core group remains. Last summer, Tablet Magazine's Matthew Fishbane visited Caracas to learn more about the past, present, and future of this community. We're very pleased to have him here with us to talk about what he found out. Matthew Fishbane, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thank you. So, Matthew, why the heck did we send you to Caracas? Well, I used to live in Bogota for a long time in Colombia, and some friends down there started asking me whether I knew that Bogota was filling up with Venezuelans, rich Venezuelans, and Jewish Venezuelans who had left Caracas. Um, Then we heard about a shopping center that was expropriated that belonged to a Jew in Caracas, Um, and we heard also about a synagogue that was sacked there in 2009. So we decided it was time to go see what was going on. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of the Jewish community in Caracas? It was very surprising to see, actually, the size and the organization of the Jewish community there. It's a community that has roots in the 19th century, uh, you know, Caribbean uh, Curaçao Jews. But there were waves of immigration then after that from uh, the beginning of the 20th century and then larger migrations right before the Second World War and especially after the Second World War. Over 10 years, the community grew to be about 40,000 Jews at one point. And it's not an insignificant number, but the fact that they live so closely together and so well organized in Caracas makes their presence feel a lot stronger in some way. And these subsequent waves of Jewish immigration to Venezuela, how did they fare socially? How did they integrate into the larger population? It's just, it's really interesting to see how they arrived and prospered so quickly. Um, the refugees who came right after the Second World War, a lot of them were Holocaust survivors um, and had eventually arrived to Venezuela, where they began building a life of four or five generations that went from being merchants to uh, small industrialists to large industrialists to finally one of the people that I met was is named Ilo Ostfeld. He is a Holocaust survivor. He tells the story of arriving to Caracas and getting off the boat and selling ties that same day. By the time I met him um, this summer, he was in the top floor a penthouse office of a, a skyscraper that he had built right in the center of Caracas. And he was, you know, had four or five different industrial uh, concerns, and he was just extremely prosperous, and but also very aware of what Venezuela had given him. Can you describe for us how the community is organized today? The Venezuelan Jewish community is extremely organized. Their institutions are incredibly strong. I was just shocked. Um, there are 15 synagogues there. They're building one more that's the 16th. But there were, beyond the synagogues, there were also community centers, there was healthcare, the, the most 
central part of the Jewish uh, life there is this uh, social club called the Hebraica, where there is full schooling. And basically every Jewish child in Venezuela goes to this school. It's a private school. And every Jewish person belongs to this club. And on any given afternoon, basically the entire Jewish community is there at the Olympic-sized pool. And this, this site is a little bit remote in the sense it's up a, off of the side of a hill. Um, and it really has the feel of a settlement almost. It's uh, exclusive. There's high walls. You have to go through security to get to it. So there's a very tight, very, very close-knit. Fifteen synagogues makes it seem like it's a particularly uh, devout and devoted community. Is it? Because when I think of South American Jews, I don't necessarily, and this might be my own bias, but I don't think necessarily of religious observance. One of the important things to say is that the community is down to maybe 5,000 or less. They don't have a census, but it's definitely off of its peak, and we're going to talk about why that is. But with, even within the 5,000 that are still there, you still have the full range of religious commitment. But it was striking to see a lot of them think of themselves as not religious. Uh, there were people wore kippot, um, people you know attended synagogue, uh, but they would also, if you asked them, a few of the people that I talked to would say, are you religious? And they would say, no, no, I'm not religious at all. I, I'm just a traditionalist. And I'd say, well, what, what does that mean? And they would say, well, you know, I, I, I go to temple every day and I, <laughs> I, I wrap tefillin and I wear kippah, but I'm not religious. Which for them, they, they had come to some kind of accommodation about how they were going to handle the rules of Judaism um, in their particular context. It kind of reminds me of uh, Angels in America. I don't know if you saw that, but when the Roy Cohn character, he becomes very adamant, I'm not gay. I just sleep with men, but I'm not gay. It's the same kind of like this divorce between actually fact and how you describe the fact. Exactly. There's, and in fact, Venezuelan life has this disconnect often between the, the political rhetoric certainly that they live with and the reality of the situation. Um, one of the things that the Venezuelan Jewish community complained about a lot, and one of the reasons why they're leaving is that it's unsafe right now for, uh, especially for upper class people. And you would talk to the Venezuelan Jews about their sense of security. They would all say, "I, I feel unsafe." I'd say, well, but why? What you know? What happens to you? And they would say, "Well, you know, like this morning, my my son was kidnapped, but it's okay. He's he's. I got him back. Don't worry about it." And you would stop and say, "Well, do you realize you just talked about your son as being?" kidnapped. That's not normal. That's, mm-hmm. that's not the way you should be living. But they, they had adapted to this other you know, reality that is life there. So Chavez was elected in 1999. And he kind of was elected on this platform of socialism. I mean, just kind of like, we're going to take back the money and put it in the hands of the people. I mean, was that kind of his thing? Yeah, he came in as a populist reformer who was going to redistribute wealth. And in a country like Venezuela, where the income gap is is so large, uh, that was something that, w- that all Venezuelans saw as uh, necessary. And then over the decade, uh, slowly as he held on to power um, and didn't make the reforms happen and change society in very specific ways by beginning to expropriate, by nationalizing the oil industry, uh, by choosing to ally himself with Iran, for example, and foreign policy and against Israel, uh, by making comments in the General Assembly, uh, you know, against Bush and uh, to, to to realign Venezuela away from the West caused significant changes in the society that affected the Jewish community. 
Has that manifested in a certain kind of anti-Semitism in Venezuela during his reign? Can you give us specific examples of how that development has been seen? Yeah, there were a number of very specific anti-Semitic incidents that occurred in Caracas over the last decade. Um, in 2004, there was a raid on on the school that's in the Ebraica compound. All of a sudden, this is things happen at the political level that are then reflected in actions by the government representatives. In this case, some um, you know brigade, a police brigade that actually uh, came into the school and was saying that uh, the school was harboring um, you know Israeli weapons and things like that, which was absurd, uh, but. This was during the school day when all the children were there. They came in with masked gunmen, armed weapons, and you know raided the school. And then as he began to make anti-Semitic uh, or anti-Zionist pronouncements, which he would make in a kind of dramatic fashion, then graffitis would start to show up around town. And finally, the kind of climax of this was in 2009. Uh, a Friday night in January 31st, 2009, um, a lot of the people that I talked to told me this story as uh, having received a phone call in the middle of the night because something horrible had happened. And what it was was the main synagogue, the first synagogue, Mari Pérez, uh, the Sephardic one, it's right in the center of town, um, had been sacked, vandalized. It, uh, Fifteen armed people had come in and tied down the security guards who protect the place and had painted 666 uh, on the wall and, uh, you know, get out Jews and pigs and other graffitis and had opened the ark and spread contents out all over the floor. Um, and this crisis brought the people who were left of the community together in a really striking way and immediately mobilized international support because, you know, this we really hadn't seen this kind of a sacking of a synagogue in the Americas in quite some time. So let's get back to the shopping center, which was kind of the nugget that got you to go to Caracas in the first place. What happened there with that shopping center? So after a few days of being there and meeting with a lot of the community, I did finally make it down to to this shopping center. And it belongs to a man named Solomon Cohen. Very important. He's, he built uh, these shopping centers that are called Sambil. And they it's hard to overstate their, the importance of these shopping centers to cultural life in Caracas. I mean... You go to these shopping centers and they're full, they're packed with people walking up and down, buying things, not buying things, just being entertained. Um, and they're a focus of, of social life. So he wanted to build another one in a little bit more dilapidated area of, of town, a more central part in a kind of um, redevelopment scheme. And he was given a full city block and he built this huge shopping center right in the middle of an old part of town when all of the residents in the, in the area that I talked to were very, very excited about the idea of having this revitalizing structure. It was going to bring commerce. It was going to bring people. Um, and it was fully built and it was largely sold. There was probably, you know, there were hundreds of, of stores inside and they had all been sold and they were ready to be occupied. And at that moment, uh, the government came and said, we're going to take this. We're expropriating. And there really was nothing to be done about it. It was just, you know, this is the government now has this ability to do so, and they, they took it. And that so when you go downtown to see this thing now, what you see is a big shell of a building that has a parking tower attached to it of, you know, 10 stories or so, in which now 3,000 people are living inside that parking. Wow. They've been there 
displaced people or people without homes that the government decided to install there. Um, that was the reason for the expropriation. And so they put military at the bottom, they put a nursery, they put schools, and there's about 3,000 people there. And there's nothing in the shopping center? Nobody's living inside the shopping center? In the shopping center itself, where there's air conditioning and other things, is empty. And it's strange. It's right in the middle of a immigrant neighborhood of Spanish immigrants who arrived in the 70s. And I asked one of the uh, store owners there, I asked him if he knew who Solomon Cohen was, and of course he had, he did because he's so important. So do you think they took it away because he was Jewish? And he said, no, no, no. They just took it away because he's rich. And Solomon Cohen is one of the few Jews in Venezuela who is intent on staying. He's not going to be leaving. He's not, he's not going to give up on Venezuela. He seems to be accepting of the idea that this has been expropriated and that he's going to go on to his next project. So Solomon isn't leaving. He's going to stay put in Venezuela. But you've said that other Jews have been leaving. Why are they leaving exactly? The main reason they're leaving, they give the most important reason, is security. They feel unsafe. They feel that they can't conduct their business. They can't go around town without being using a bulletproof car or having some kind of security of some kind. And this is just pure delinquency. It isn't political. It isn't directed at Jews. It's just that it's dangerous right now. Um, the other reason that they have is that younger generations are not seeing a future for themselves in Venezuela anymore. So they're leaving. And that's dragging families after them. So you have the children and grandchildren of these Holocaust survivors of this first wave of migration. Now they're rich. They can go to school in the United States. They can go to Madrid. They, you know, they have apartments in Costa Rica and Miami. They go to Miami. So what would be the reason to come back to Venezuela after studying in the States? They don't have one anymore. So now the family's separated. They're still Latino in the sense that their families are very, very close, and they just don't want to be Part. So now the majority of people are now in Miami. So now the, the last ones who are living in Caracas are following. So that's the second reason why they're leaving. The third reason is that financially they're under duress. They lived a very prosperous life, and now all of a sudden that lifestyle is no longer available to them in Caracas. So they're looking elsewhere to be able to live that lifestyle. So is there a sense in the community there of great sadness that we are – this is a community that's dying finally? The Venezuelan Jewish community is so patriotic as well, on top of being very, you know, highly spiritual and organized and very Jewish. They're also, they love Venezuela. They appreciate it. Um, so they're very sad. They see, they uh, some of them are, are there, they feel that they're still fighting for the community to exist. And in some ways, um, the future of Venezuela and the future of the Venezuelan Jewish community isn't written yet because Chavez is up for a, a re-election in 2012. He's also been sick. You know, anything, things could happen. And it, there's, they're at a tipping point where if Chavez were to fall, then a lot of Jews would probably come back. So there's the sense that they're at a very risky place and some of them are working very hard to try to maintain the Jewish community. But if it does teeter and it does fall, it will be the end of, of a, a unique expression of desperate Judaism. And they, they recognize that. They are very self-aware. They, they have a good sense of their, their past, um, of their being Holocaust survivors and arriving 
setting up a new life. But Jews are nothing if not adaptable. That's true. And in this case, you know, it's funny because the adaptability here is, they all of them talk about how easy it was to come to Venezuela because there was fruit hanging from the trees. <laughs> you know, it was warm all the time. Nobody was trying to kill them. I mean, it was, it, was, it was the paradise that everybody was looking for. And especially when you think about these boats of refugees after the Second World War, you know, not being allowed in to port after port in the Caribbean and arriving to Guaida. There's one, one of the Holocaust survivors, a woman, tells a good story about coming to Venezuela. She says when she, she got the, her husband came to find her in Israel and married her there, brought her to Venezuela, she had no idea what Venezuela was like. She only had this concept of it because some ceramic tiles were named Panama. <laughs> and she thought she was going to this place where these ceramic tiles were made. And she arrived and he took her to the, to the neighborhood where they were, which was a leafy, beautiful neighborhood. And uh, she went into the bathroom and she saw green tiles this is the first bathroom. She was liberated at Auschwitz. This is the first bathroom she'd ever seen that had color in wow. it. And she decided that first day that she was going to go buy green toilet paper so that it would match this. <laughs> and she just felt a sense of, you know, this is, this is where I'm going to be. This is, this is it. I don't, I don't need anything else. And she has grandchildren who are leaving. Matthew Fishbane, thank you so much for uh, speaking with us. Thanks for having me. Be sure to check out Matthew's article at tabletmag.com for a much more in-depth look at how the Jews of Caracas see their fate and the fate of Venezuela. We want to hear, as ever, what you think about our podcast. Why don't you write us a note at podcast at tabletmag.com. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivry. We thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.